Good morning. And let's go ahead and begin our class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this opportunity again to study, to learn of you, of your kingdom of love. And we ask not only that we can experience uh, greater insights and, and experiences of your love, but that you'll make us more effective in, in breaking down the barriers in this world to your kingdom of love. We can be lights in this world, we pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing the first lesson in the new lesson study guide, The Gospel in Galatians, and the title is Paul, Apostle to the Gentiles. In the first paragraph, the Sabbath lesson reads, It's not that hard to understand Saul of Tarsus, also known as the Apostle Paul after his conversion, and why, and why he did what he did. As a devout Jew who was taught all his life about the importance of the law and about the soon-coming political redemption of Israel, the idea of the long-awaited Messiah being ignominiously executed like the worst of criminals was just too much for him to tolerate. And I thought, okay, Saul, what do you think Saul, growing up as is, is an is a, uh, Israelite, would have had as his core foundational belief systems at this time in, in, in his life? Um, and I thought I'd maybe list some of the doctrinal beliefs that he might have attested to and see if you think that, that this would be maybe fairly accurate. Would, would Saul of Tarsus believed in the creator God? Yes. You know, creation versus an evolutionary type thing or godless world. Yeah, he'd believe in the creator God. How about would he believe that mankind had fallen into sin? Would he believe that? Would, would he believe that the Messiah, there was a Messiah promised to deliver mankind? Would that be one of his core beliefs? Would he believe that the Jews were a special chosen people by God to prepare for the advent of the Messiah? Would he believe that? Would he believe that the Sabbath was a special and a holy day? Yes. Would he believe that were diet laws that needed to be followed? Yes. Would he uh, believe that the, that the Jewish people should not marry non-Jews? Yes. Don't be unequally yoked and so forth. Um, would he believe that the sanctuary was important to God's plan of salvation? Yes. And then what would Saul believe about God's law? Would Saul of Tarsus believe more in an imposed law construct that God made up rules and broken rules required that we must have justice and punishment for broken rules? Or do you think Saul of Tarsus, prior to his conversion, would have seen uh, God more in the design law way, God's law? More in the punishing law way? And... How would Saul, if he saw God's law as a system of rules that require just enforcement of rules, how would Saul have uh, acted toward those who weren't keeping the rules? Let me ask you this. What group on earth today, what group on earth today, if there is one, maybe there's none, but is there a group on earth today who believes in all these things and would attest to the same doctrines that Paul attested, excuse me, Saul of Tarsus attested to. For instance, is there a group of day that believes and worships a creator God, that man has fallen into sin, that a Messiah came and, and of course, achieved his mission 2,000 years ago, that God has a special end-time people who are to prepare for the advent of the Messiah, that the Sabbath is a special day, that the diet needs to be modified closer to God's original design, that the sanctuary is important in God's plan of salvation. Is there a group of people today that, that would be similar to that? Who, who, who would that be? Seventh-day Adventists come close, it seems. And what would you say most Seventh-day Adventists believe about God's law? Do you think they see God's law as design protocols, the majority in the church, or they see it as a system of rules? God's the rule giver, and broken rules require 
that records be kept and God is always just and he will never punish somebody more than they deserve and he sent Jesus to take the punishment because he loves us. Uh, how, how do most Adventists do you think see? Let me ask you this. Was Saul of Tarsus, was there any, beside, put the law question aside for a minute, all the other doctrines we listed, was there anything wrong with those doctrines? Did he have the wrong day of worship? Did he have the wrong idea about creator God, the man falling into sin, need for a Messiah? All these things. No. Was Saul of Tarsus able to do God's work and fulfill God's purposes as long as he operated on the false law construct? Even with all the right doctrines, could he do God's work? Think that through. What about the Seventh-day Adventist church today? Or any Christian church? Can we fulfill God's work if we have the right list of doctrines, state of the dead, Sabbath, sanctuary, diet, uh, the nature of the Trinity? All, we have the right doctrines, but we filter them all through the lens that God governs like humans govern, system of rules that he punishes for breaking. Can we fulfill God's purpose? No. Is there any wonder why there's a delay. Any wonder why the Lord hasn't returned? What method did Saul of Tarsus use to convert people away from what he thought was heretical beliefs in Jesus as the Messiah? He was, he was out to, to convert people. How, how did he do it? What method did he use? Arrests, force, coercion, the temple guards, imprisonments, absolutely. What method do most Christian evangelists use today? Now, they might not have the power of the state to actually put people in jail, but what does their preaching, what method does their preaching say? If you don't adhere to this set, come to this belief, accept Jesus as your Savior, then God will be forced to punish you. Some even go far as to say, for eternity in hell. And some will say in their evangelistic crusades, when they're doing the altar call, I'm gonna, then, the, then the music's playing. Now, I, 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 the Spirit is impressing me to leave it open one more moment because there's somebody that might leave here today and get in a car accident and die before they get a chance to accept Jesus. And, and, and you might be lost for all eternity and suffer in hell for all eternity. So I, I don't want that person to, to be lost. I'm going to leave this open for another minute. Is there one person? You, you've heard this? What, what's, what's the implied threat? If you don't accept Jesus, he'll torture you in hell. What method is being used? Coercion. I uh, brought this to class a few years ago. I thought I'd share it again today on this idea of evangelism. Uh, you ever seen a million-dollar bill? This is being passed out by some Christian groups in the community. I, I, one came across my desk. So it's uh, Ben Franklin, and it's $1 million. It kind of looks like a, a legal tender, but on the back it, it says the following. Here is the million-dollar question. Will you go to heaven when you die? Here's a quick test. Do you want to know if you'll go to heaven? Here's a quick test. Have you ever lied, stolen, or used God's name in vain? Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in her heart. If you've done any of these things, God sees you as lying, as a, as a lying, thieving, blasphemous adulterer, at heart, and the Bible warns that one day God will punish you in a terrible place called hell. But God will, God is not willing that you should perish. Sinners broke God's law, and Jesus paid their fine. This means that God can legally dismiss their case. What law lens? 
what method is being used. You better accept this payment or God will torture you for all eternity. Love me or I will kill you. Can the church do God's work when we present Satan's view of God's law? No. I hope I'm making this clear. Does anybody disagree with the argument I'm making and think that I'm, I'm overstating it and it's really not so bad? When Paul, what, Paul, what method did Paul use after his conversion? Did his method change? He wrote, I would gladly give my lives that my fellow, my life that fellow Jews might live. Uh, Romans 14, 5, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. Ephesians, we present the truth in love. We leave people free. There's a complete methodology change after his conversion. Before, no, they're breaking the rules. They're apostatizing. They're breaking away. They're leading people in deception. We have to punish. We have to imprison. We have to kill these people to stop it. After his conversion, no. We present truth and lovely people free. Complete different methodology. What does God want from his intelligent creatures? What's his end game? Now, I know the people that preach this kind of stuff. I've asked them. Some of them, obviously, not every person on earth, but I've asked some people who teach this. You know what their answer typically is? Obedience. He wants obedience. You ever heard that? He wants obedience. What what does obedience mean? That we don't break his law. Hmm. Is that what God truly wants? First off, it's a misunderstanding of what Bible obedience is. Bible obedience comes from hypoacue. A hypo means lower, under, or humble. A QA, acoustical, to listen. Bible obedience is a heart that is eager to listen and follow. I want, I want to do. I want. My, my heart is, is to be on your side. I want to do what, what is in harmony with you. I love you. I trust you. And, and I'm eager to follow where you're leading. That, it's not about performance. It's about heart attitude. But what God wants is he wants those kind of hearts. He wants hearts that love and trust him. Hearts that actually want to follow where he leads. Can God get love and trust by threatening to imprison and torture and kill if you don't love and trust? Do you see why Satan has infected Christianity with this type of evangelism? Because we can convert. We search the world over to find a convert. And when we do, we make him twice the son of hell as as, as we ourselves are, is what it says. Twice the son of hell? How can they be twice the son of hell? Well, if we have a terminal condition and we're dying, son of hell, lost in sin, and we don't know anything about Jesus or God's plan to save, we're once the son of hell. We're once in condemnation because we have a condition that if without remedy will result in our death. But now if somebody comes along and sells us on a false remedy that has no power to heal and restore, but we become convinced this is going to get us well and it's going to save us, not only do we still have the same condition that's making us, uh, that, uh, that's terminal, it's killing us, now we won't even look for the healthy condition, I mean the actual true remedy, because we're taking a false remedy. So not only do we now have the condition to get over, we have the lies that we're believing that have to be removed too. We have two hurdles to get over. This is what happens when we convert people to legal religion, to penal substitution theology. When they convert to that, they have this false security. All my sins are placed on Christ, past, present, and future. I'm punished in him 2,000 years ago. God now declares that I'm righteous, even though I'm not. In the eyes of heaven, I'm, I'm completely righteous now. It doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter the condition of my heart. It doesn't matter. Oh, yes, he'll clean me up one day, but we won't get cleaned up until he comes and we see him face to face. We're going to continue to sin. 
There's no victory. There's no transformation. It's all legal. Not only do we have the same condition, we have a false security, so we wouldn't even look for transformation anymore. This whole construct, which has infected Christianity, was prophesied in Scripture, setting himself up in God's temple we talked about last week. The little man, the man of sin, proclaiming himself to be God. It's all based on the false law construct that your problem is a legal one. What we should be saying is, we are dying in a terminal condition, and if you don't trust God, he'll be unable to heal you. Why? Why will he be unable to heal you? Because the healing is the transformation of your character. And the only way for your character to be renewed and to be rehealed is by your voluntary and willful participation. God cannot heal your character without you choosing to be a participant. Why? Doesn't God have the power to rewrite your character and mind and impose a perfect character upon you? Doesn't he have the power and ability to do that? Yes, he does. He has that. He's the infinite God. He can do that. But the moment he does that, the person, the individual that you are is erased and a new identity is is written in. If you aren't a voluntary participant, your sense of self, your individuality is gone. And a new new individuality exists. You may say, well, okay, so there's a lot of wickedness in the world. Why didn't he just do that anyway? Let me ask you this, parents. Any parents in here have had a child that might have uh, gone into some disobedience, maybe been living rebelliously? If you had the power to erase their identity and put another person's individuality, another person's identity in their body, replacing their mind, so that now you have somebody who's always obedient and kind and not rebellious, but it's not your child. Would you do it? But they're not rebellious anymore. Why wouldn't you do it? Because it's not your child. This is why God doesn't use his power to do this. He loves each one of us as individuals. And and what if your child would persist in a way that would result in their ultimate destruction? What do you do? Linda? Don't you think that's one of the reasons why people are shield themselves really against God? Because even though he seems like a nice guy, there's a you know meanie up there somewhere trying to get you at every turn. And they're kind of afraid that God will change them from who they are to something they don't even recognize. And they're not willing to, what they see is giving over that individuality voluntarily by opening the door. They don't realize that God is, a, is like a restorer of an old dilapidated building that brings it back to its pristine, its pristine well said. character. Mm-hmm. And so they're afraid of what God will do and they, because they don't understand that God has their well-being, their individuality, and his heart. That's exactly well said. I like the analogy of the, of the house being restored. What? Without And he can't restore us if we don't trust him. Yeah. Yes. And what that does is it takes our strong individual character, uh, character traits, like Paul, for example, who's very bold and very uh, ambitious, and God takes that same trait and transforms it into something beautiful and so the traits that I might have in my character that are unlovely God can transform them so I still have them but they're now for good yeah wonderfully said and so if you see this idea many Christians get stuck on making the right creed the right list of doctrines the right list of of, uh, belief systems might even call those fundamental beliefs in some some circles okay (laughs) 
And if you have that right list and you attest to that right list and you get baptized under the umbrella of that right list, then you can feel secure that you're safe because you believe the right things. The problem is you can have that entire right list, every one of them, and filter them all through God's law functions like human law. And therefore, this is the beast system. This is why you can keep the Sabbath and put Christ on the cross and want him off by sunset to keep the Sabbath. Because you have the right list through an imposed imperial law system. This is the true infection. This is the wine of Babylon. This corrupt system of a dictator God who uses power to inflict punishment rather than the creator God is also one of the things that led to the split between religion and science. Because thinking people look at the world and they're basing their understanding of reality on how design law works. How does reality actually work? Imperialism and imposed law, it's not about how reality works. It's what the rule giver says. And it doesn't really matter. He's still going to make it happen because he's got power and he's going to make it go that way. And there's this inconsistency that causes the, the God to be seen as a completely untrustworthy dictator. And thinking people go, I'd rather believe in no God than to believe in that God. And in reality, it is healthier to believe in no God than to believe in a dictator God. But God is in control. Yes, God is in control. The question is, of what? See, when people say God is in control, it's coming from that very primitive, childish way of thinking that he's in control of everything. He's in control of all the choices people make. So he's in control when a man rapes a woman and she gets pregnant. That's God creating. And we should say, praise God, and that woman should be thankful. This is how a lot of people think in Christianity. It's very corrupt, and it's wrong. That's because they see it through imperial law rather than design law. Yes? Could we modify a little bit? Not every law is bad. There are good laws, and we must obey them, because those are instructions how to live. They don't save us, but they tell us how to live. And we must obey them, like you don't drink acid. So when you hear the word law, the first thing I say is, are you thinking laws of gravity, laws of physics, laws of health? It's a very accurate and appropriate use of the word. Or are you thinking tax law, speed limit laws, um, policies and procedures within a, within a corporation, um, the, the, the bylaws, as they call those, okay? Are we thinking of, of those types of laws? It, it makes a difference when you first say, there are good laws. Of course, there's really incredibly good laws. All the design laws are really good laws. And then there are some codified bylaws that are designed to help us understand the design law. So why does the instructions in your owner's manual of your car say unleaded yes only why don't you put water in the tank it's cheaper (laughs) (laughs) not bottled water (laughs) so why don't you do that because the law and the company will then have somebody following behind you and keep a checklist and they'll punish you for it or because that guideline is based on the laws of physics that the engine is designed to operate upon and if you break those laws of physics then the whole system breaks down why is it that osha has rules that welders must have certain eye protection 
Because if you don't do that, then you're, and, and you may be subject to fines and punishments if you're an employer and don't give people eye protection as welding. It might be. There might be these arbitrary imposed rules. Why are they there? Because we like imposing rules is the real problem that you're going to get punished. We do this to our employees so this government won't punish us. We really don't care anything about how, how their vision is. But, or is, is those rules based on the laws of health and the, and the, the intensity of light is actually damaging to the, the optic nerves and you blind people? In this way, it's a violation of the laws of health. So are there guidelines? And why were the guidelines in the OSHA written? Because there are people who maliciously want to go around and purposely blind people? Perhaps there might be. There might be some really sadistic people that might. But the primary reason isn't for them, because they'll do it anyway. The primary reason is for the ignorant people, the children that don't know better. And this rule is to help them realize, hey, do this, and it'll protect you. Because they don't automatically know you shouldn't look at a welder's ark. And in scripture, we find many of those things happening. And, and so God has given all types of instructions. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't worship things made with your own hands. Why? Because it corrupts your mind. It sears your conscience. It warps your character. Your minds become dark and depraved and futile, just like your eyes become dark and when you well without a, without a shield. It's not that I'm going to punish you. It's not that I'm keeping a checklist. It's that you're changing yourself. This is design law, law of worship. But we didn't know it, so God gave us some guidelines for that. Those guidelines are good. The problem is, people then take the guidelines and make the guidelines absolute. And worship the guidelines. Yes. Could we add that there are only two types of people on this earth? The obedient and the disobedient. And since we follow the healing model of salvation, it's very applicable. You have only two types of patients. The obedient and you cure them, and the disobedient, and they die. Okay, if you understand obedience, meaning what? Living in harmony with how reality works, and a desire to be healthier, and you're applying yourself to it. Does that mean you get all your exercises right exactly at the gym? Does that mean you actually go to the gym every day when your physical therapy... Does that mean all the physical therapy patients do all the exercises they're told just the right way every time? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, it doesn't. But does it? But are, are there patients who, even though they don't do the right exercises right every time, they actually are motivated, they're working, and they are getting better versus patients who don't try? Yep. Yeah. So it's not about performance. It's about heart investment and engagement. Yeah. Well, you look at the Old Testament, the dietary laws, the kosher laws, had a very good purpose at that time because they didn't have refrigeration and all that other stuff. It's not, it's not particularly applicable today, though some of it's common sense. So the dietary laws, which uh, ceremonially were done away with at the cross, and you can eat anything you want and not be ceremonially unclean, does that mean the laws of health were done away with at the cross? No. So can you eat anything you want and be healthy? No. Is there anything in the Bible that says thou shalt not eat poison ivy salad? <laughs> I don't see a, a pro- prohibition there anywhere. It's not written down. You are free to eat poison ivy salad if you'd like. I'd recommend against it. Okay, there's a point there, isn't there? Okay, many of the things people eat that were on the prohibited list and they eat today, um, nutrition science tells us is actually very damaging to the body. It accelerates aging, accelerates obesity, diabetes, arthrosclerosis, stroke, dementia, all kinds of problems for us. So while there was principles of refrigeration that were important back then as well, there's also actually health for the whole body, even today, that that can be benefited by it. 
So I tell people all over, yes, you can eat anything you want if you're only wor- worried about ceremonial stuff. But if you're worried about health stuff, then laws of health are still in, in, in force. Um, if we look into Sunday's lesson, the first paragraph points out that Saul was involved in the stoning of Stephen, holding the coats of those who stoned him. And how did Stephen respond as they're stoning him? Do you remember what he said? Acts 7.60? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Basically the same thing. It depends on translation. What do you see manifested here in, in, in Stephen's response? Is there something being manifested? Is, is the character of Stephen the character of a fallen, sinful human being? Or is the character of Stephen the character of Christ being manifested here? Do you see the survival of the fittest principle in Stephen here? Or do you see love for others more than self being manifested here? Is this a demonstration of what the Bible says, be ye therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect? Is this the Bible perfection? Perfect love for other people. Perfect trust in God with my life. My, my life is in your hands, God. And I love other people. It's, or, it's not about perfect behavioral conformity or deeds. It's about a heart, trust, and love. When perfection comes up, though, in Christian circles, those with the legal model immediately get anxiety, focus on deeds, behaviors, and teach theologies that no one is perfect and no one can be perfect, and we keep on sinning and keep on sinning and sinning and sinning, but we're under the umbrella of grace because they've all been paid for already, so you don't have to worry about any punishment if you accept Jesus. You can keep sinning and won't get punished for it because Jesus has already been punished in your place. And God will recognize you as righteous even though you're not because he declared you to be so even though you're not. We call that lying in most circles, but when in the penal substitution theology, they've got a loophole where that's not lying. Is there evidence that it is really about the change of heart and not about the behaviors and the deeds in Scripture? Do we find evidence in Scripture of people who are found to be right with God even though their behaviors are not right? Thief on the cross, David. Well, we don't have really much of an account of the thief on the cross because we don't have his life after that. So. Yeah, but we don't have the the thief doesn't count for me because we have his conversion. We need to see how he lived after that. He didn't live after that. Right, so he doesn't count for for our evidence. So, Except Jesus said, you will be with me in there. Right, but, it, but the question doesn't apply to him. Do we have evidence of somebody whose deeds doesn't count about a change of heart? Okay, yes, he had a heart change and he was up to Jesus, but how did he live after that? How about Rahab? Now, we have an example of Rahab. How about David? How about King David, his life? How about Samson? Look at Samson's life. I mean, we're looking at deeds now, over the course of time, people on God's side working for him, are these people behaving perfectly? How about Jephthah? Remember Jephthah? By the way, uh, where do we find these people in the New Testament? But we find them in the New Testament somewhere. In Hebrews 11, as examples of the faithful, the ones who trusted God. These are the faithful. Samson, really? Jephthah, remember what Jephthah did? Sacrificed his daughter. Made a promise to God that the first thing that meets him when he comes home, he'll sacrifice, and his daughter runs out, and he gives his daughter three weeks to go celebrate with, his, with her friends, and then he sacrifices her to God. A human sacrifice. One of the faithful. Do you think Stephen's death had significance upon? And the point I'm making with that is, It's truly about the heart change, not the behavior. And as the heart change, the behavior over time changes, 
But it may not change instantly, even if you have a trusting heart. You read in Romans chapter 7, the things that I want to do, I don't find myself doing. And the things I, I do, is not what I want to do. But, but, you know, in my mind, I love God. But in my body, I am still weak. Yes. And your heart can change, but you may still pay the consequences of past behavior. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't escape consequences on this earth. It will escape consequence of a, of a seared conscience and a warped character because you'll be renewed in the inner person. But you may have broken family relationships like David had. You may lose respect of people like David did. Okay, yeah. So Stephen's death, did it have significance beyond his own life? Hebrews 2.14 says that since the children have flesh and blood, that Christ shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him, holds the power of death that is the devil, and free those who live all their lives held in the slavery of their fear of death. Who's living their lives afraid of death? All of humanity. Yeah. Do you think Saul of Tarsus had a fear of death? And what did he see in Stephen as Stephen's being stoned? Did he see Stephen afraid of death? No. And this is quite striking to Saul. It really is disturbing to him. How is he not upset? How is he not afraid? How is he not screaming in agony? He, I'm sure Saul had seen crucifixions. I'm sure Saul had seen stonings. I'm sure Saul had seen many people die, and he saw the fear and the agony and the terror and the dread in most of those people. But in Stephen, what did he see? He said, heaven opened up, and he saw, saw the Son of Man. He, he was joyful. He was elated. And, and if you're like Desire of Ages, it said his face was shining like that of an angel, Moses like on the mountain. He saw something different. I think it was unsettling to Paul. I think it really disturbed him. So in the last paragraph, it says, Saul saw the great... And we are in uh, Sunday's lesson now. In the last paragraph, it says, um, Saul saw the great prophetic promises of God's kingdom had not yet been fulfilled. And he probably believed it was his task to help God bring that day about, which could be done by cleansing Israel of religious corruption, including the idea that Jesus was the Messiah. Again, what method was, was Saul of Tarsus using to cleanse the nation of religious corruption? Coercion, force. Every religion, I'm going to tell you, if you're looking for how to identify beastly system at the end of time, who's got the mark of the beast? Who's got the seal of God? How can I tell? You've been told many things that are not true. Watch the feet. If you watch the feet and the Antichrist touches the the ground, then then it's the real real Antichrist because Jesus won't touch the ground. Just watch the feet. If you watch the feet, you'll be safe. Okay? You haven't heard this one. You know, Christ won't touch the ground when he returns. uh, So just watch the feet. Um, or the, the Seventh-day Sabbath. If, if they promote Sunday as the Sabbath, then you know it's the mark of the beast. If they promote the Sabbath as the Sabbath, then you can be sure it's the, it's the seal of God. No, here's the thing to watch for. Methods that they use. Any religious system that uses force, coercion, threat, inflicted punishment, sanctions, intimidation, to enforce religious dogma exposes itself as false. It's not godly. When they act in such a way, they become beastly. And they represent the beast system. Remember the beast system in Revelation? Here's a quote from Revelation 13. No one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast and the number of the name. What method? If you can't buy or sell, what method is that? Coercion. Economic sanctions. We don't use economic sanctions in the world today, do we? You can't buy or sell in the world market unless you obey what the United States says. How many Christians today 
would gladly take control of their governments and pass laws to enforce what they believe is right moral behavior. How many Christians today would accept a God who comes performing miracles, speaking gentle and melodious words, begging sinners to repent and worship him, yet stating, I died for you, I love you, I only want to heal you, but if you won't let me, justice requires that I punish you. I'll imprison you first to give you some time to think it over. I'll take your property from you. I won't let you buy and sell, but if in the end you still won't repent and worship me, justice requires I punish you only as much as you deserve before I execute you. That's justice. How many Christians will go, this is our God, we've waited for him. This is Satan impersonating Christ. How about if he comes to a group of Adventists, a a being of brilliant light, speaking melodiously, performing miracles, and and he comes onto the world stage and said, Christians, Christians, I want you to know, I've had a few faithful remnant people on the earth who have been faithful to me and my law. No time in human history have I changed the holiness of Sabbath to Sunday. And I know most of you have been keeping Sunday in all innocence, and there's no evil in that. But now it's time on earth for you to worship me, the Creator, on the day that I made holy. And I only want you to love and worship me, but if you don't, I'll be required by holiness to punish you for breaking my law. I'll, I'll, I'll imprison you first, I'll, I'll keep you from buying or selling, and then in the end, if you still won't worship me on my holy Sabbath, I will be required to kill you. How many Adventists will say, This is our God, we've waited for him? It's the beast. It's beastly. God doesn't work this way. Saw some hands. Yes, Wendell. This goes back to the where we started in this lesson, at least when I came in, about uh, the, the difference between imposed law and natural law. One of the stories, the parables that um, Christ talks about or what was enacted was when his disciples went through a grain field and were picking grain on the Sabbath. And they were condemned. And we read that story, and in fact, the heading in one of my translations has Christ the Lord of the Sabbath, authority over the Sabbath. And so we think, oh, he is in charge of the Sabbath. He can do whatever he wants to. But when you read the text, it says, um, I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. And we think, oh, it must be Christ. No, something. Love. He goes on to, to finish that statement, but if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would have not condemned it. It's not that Christ is there, it's a principle that's there. It's a natural law of what the Sabbath is about. And they're making. So, just because Christ is the Lord, He's the Lord of the Sabbath because He's the Lord of love. It's not because he can change the Sabbath into something else than what it is. I like it. I like it. Uh, Linda. Well, man, my thoughts were going along. What happens, I think, is people look at the Old Testament, how God interacted with the Israelites, and it seems coercive, and it seems punishing. And they can't correlate that God that, that actually is the same Jesus, <laughs> the same, very same being that presents as Jesus, was that God as well. And they can't marry the two, and they see that as an example of what he might do at the end of time. And that's because they go to the Old Testament with the assumed imposed law construct already over their minds. That's how they already see it, because they already see it as, as the imposed law. That's what they read. If they understood design law when they read the Old Testament, they'd see therapeutic interventions going on, not punishments. So, another hand some more. 
Yes, over here. Thing, bringing all these wonderful thoughts together because in the obedience element, whenever it's based in a heart of a transformed heart, that is love and action being the obedience instead of just simply doing the acts because it's the list. Whenever you have the God that, we, that when we say God is in control and in control of what, the, the part that strikes me is he's the only one that can be trusted with the control. Because he is the one that can then unselfish love give back that free will choice and not coerce and not not be the ogre that so often is the misunderstanding. So that transformed heart. So this idea of religious groups taking control of governments to coerce and force their religious dogmas on other people. What's the consequence? Well, what about prohibition? Prohibition came about in this country because religious groups, Christians, got together, passed laws because they realized the, the, the horrible effect alcohol has on so many people. Well, our society would be better if we just outlawed it. Did our society get better when we prohibited alcohol? No. It actually led to significant... No, it, it led to... I read a whole book on that, actually. It really led to a significant increase in, in crime, syndicate... Pardon? That's the end of it, but not only because the criminal elements hadn't had time to organize yet. Okay, so where did it lead to? This is this is the this is the deception of the coercive model. The coercive model at first leads to conformity of external behavior, while there's rebellion seeding in the heart. And over the course of time, as rebellion seeds in the heart, then they look for avenues for the rebellion to express itself, and eventually, rebellion takes over and the society collapses. And that's what really happened with prohibition. It did not make our society better. We ended up with significant significantly more crime. And are persuaded that they shouldn't drink. But but you just said when people believe in persuaded, when people believe in persuaded, they're converted. They're not coerced. And therefore, there's no need to pass a law to outlaw alcohol because then it's nobody wants it anymore and it simply has no market and nobody buys it. Okay, so that's perfectly righteous to do. In the early days, it was very successful. In the 1830s and 40s and 50s, it was very successful because people were persuaded. But, but that's not prohibition. Prohibition is when you pass laws to coerce people who want alcohol and make it illegal so they can't get it. That's prohibition. Conversion to a society where nobody wants to drink is a completely different thing. That's actually very healthy. We want to convert people to live healthy, but you can't coerce it. You get rebellion, and that's what our society showed. What about societies where Sharia laws are passed? Do you think that societies with Sharia laws are in operation? You have more mature and healthy societies. Do people get more enlightenment? Do people get more individuality? Do they get more mental and cognitive development? Or is individuality, relationships, love, and everything stifled and crushed under Sharia law? It's crushed. There's not equality of the sexes under Sharia law. Women don't get opportunity to develop their individuality and think. They're not treated as equal partners. If you disobey, there's harsh punishments. What about when abortion was illegal in this country? When abortion was illegal, did it stop abortions from happening in this country? No. In fact, not only were the abortions happening, but many of the women were getting them were, were, were dying because of the terrible conditions. Are some Christians today trying to pass laws to force others to comply with their beliefs? It won't work. Does God work in this way to implement his plan of salvation. Does God pass laws and use threats of punishment to convert people? It cannot work. It only leads to rebellion. Monday's lesson focuses on Saul's conversion. When Jesus said to him, it's hard to kick against the goads, what does this mean? 
to what is Jesus referring? It's hard to kick against the goads. Is Jesus commenting on an inflicted punishment upon Saul or a natural consequence? What type of law is being involved in Jesus' comments? Is there a principle of experiencing pain when we sin here? What happens if you touch a hot stove? Hopefully you'll feel pain. Is that pain bad for you? Or is that pain good for you? Why is the pain good? What does it lead you to do? Step back. But it causes you to reflexively pull away from the damaging heat that is, that is searing your flesh and, and burn. It, 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 it's actually healthy for you. The pain leads you to turn around. What if you feel no pain when you touch the hot stove? Is there a condition where people can touch hot stoves and they feel no pain? Leprosy. Leprosy does not cause tissue damage. Leprosy destroys pain fibers. So you touch the hot stove, but you don't feel pain. And so you don't pull back until you smell the flesh burning. And that's why when you see people missing tips of fingers and stuff, they've cut their own fingers off. They've burned their own fingers off because the normal, when you cut yourself in the kitchen with a knife, you pull back and stop because you feel pain. Do you see why leprosy is a metaphor for sin? Metaphor for sin. Because sin deadens your conscience. So you can persist in doing things that warp your character, harden your heart. That's what happens when we sin. So what happens inside the person who cheats, who steals, who commits adultery? What happens to them? Well, they get a whole long list. And depends on how long they do it, they'll have to burn longer in the fire. God's keeping track. Or is something happening to their character? Is their heart being hardened? Is there a capacity for genuine love and concern for others being, being, being destroyed? Is this an inflicted punishment that happens inside a person when they lie, cheat, exploit others, murder? And it activates the fear, too, because they're afraid of being found out. Right, and so that's a part of it. And they become more self-referenced and more self-protective. And then they project that out on others. And they see evil in other people. And they attack others and, and anybody who might bring light to bear on this. So those in darkness don't want to come into the light, lest their evil deeds be exposed. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Notice what they said. Don't cast your pearls. It doesn't say don't cast your stones. Don't cast your criticisms. It says, don't cast your pearls, your pearls of truth, your pearls of witness, of, 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 uh, of wisdom before swines. Why? Because they'll turn and rend you asunder. Those in darkness don't want truth. They don't want their evil deeds exposed. And if you try to pass the pearls along to them when they're in that mindset, they'll attack and destroy you, just like they did Christ. They don't want it. Uh, just a question uh, to reconcile the story of Jonah, um, where you see God asked him to do something. And growing up, you hear that he was punished and the different punishments that fell upon him and the people that are around him until he did what God wanted him to do. And what was the punishment? Restrictions, being swallowed by a fish. I mean, it seems a little more than therapeutic interventions. And so I guess just to rationalize or see a better view of the story of Jonah, how would we take that not as coercion and as a so, experience? Or how do we... I personally believe God has foreknowledge. I think he knows the choices people will make. And he knows the hearts and mind. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. Did, did God, before he gave Jonah his instructions, know Jonah's character, know his heart, and even know how Jonah was going to respond? So did it catch God by surprise that Jonah ran down, Jonah ran down and got on a boat and had, headed out to sea? Did that catch God by surprise? No. Now, there were other prophets God could have called besides Jonah. Why did he call Jonah? Because he knew what Jonah was going to do, and Jonah ran down there, and God prepared for that, and then he sends a storm, and in the storm, what was Jonah's response now? Let's just show me a little about Jonah's character. It's me, sacrifice myself, throw me over the side so you all can be saved. There's some self-sacrificial love here in Jonah. He's not all selfish. 
Okay, so he's got a character. It's willing to work. But he had some biases. He hated the people of Nineveh. He didn't really want to go tell them. He wanted them to die. But he wasn't completely corrupt and hard either. So God, so they're thrown over to the side. God is prepared for this. A great fish swallows him. And this time, Jonah has time to think and reflect. And then eventually this fish belches him up on sea, I mean on the land, and he goes to preach to a group of people in Nineveh. Now, what god did the Ninevites worship? Fish Dagon. Dagon, the fish god. Now think that through. <laughs> They're worshiping the fish god, and a giant fish coughs up some guy. He's probably got a little white on his face from the acid in the stomach. And, you know, and he comes up and he says, repent. And what did they do? They repented. So do we see this as God punishing Jonah or God knowing exactly who was needed for the mission to the Ninevites because he loved the Ninevites and he really wanted them to repent because they're not only all the 100,000 people but all the animals too, it says. So I don't see this as a punishment. I see it as a beautiful therapeutic intervention. But if you go with Poe's law and you misread the whole thing. Yes? And then at the end, he says in his discussion to God about I told you that you were loving God and would forgive him. You know? Yep, that's exactly right. <laughs> I knew this yep. was going to happen. Yep. That's why I ran away, because I knew you weren't going to kill him. Okay? So in, in, in uh, Sunday's lesson, it says, right in the middle of the lesson, what role did the grace of God have in, uh, in his experience? In other words, how much did Saul deserve the goodness that the Lord showed him? That yes. bothered me. What bothered you? That's the Yes, that's why I'm bringing it up. Yes. Good. So it bothers you because what does it make it sound like grace is like? What definition do you think they're using here? The classic definition is unmerited favor. And that's what it sounds like. He didn't deserve it. Didn't deserve it at all. And this is the definition often used. If this is the true definition of grace, grace is unmerited favor. You're getting favor that you do not deserve. That's what grace is. Then when the Bible speaks of Jesus in these words, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor. The English word is favor, but the Greek word is the exact word for grace. In grace with God and man. Jesus, you really don't deserve this favor and this grace. You don't deserve it at all. Is that what it means? You don't deserve it, Jesus. How about when you say grace before blessing? God, you really don't deserve our thanks, but we're going to give it anyway. Are you comfortable with that definition? Yes. Do your children deserve the grace of taking care of them, taking them to immunizations, taking them to other places, and doing good things for them? Do they deserve it? Of course, they're your children. I like where you're going. So... The traditional view of grace is completely flawed, and it's flawed because the people who come up with that view go with a bias on their mind already conceived that the law works like our law. Let me give you a sense where you can, can get a feel of how corrupt this mindset is. In the scientific community today, when any facts of data of science are discovered and evaluated, the vast majority of science scientists look at that data with the knowledge, belief, and absolute certainty in evolution. They don't look at the data and say, well, you know what, evolution's a theory, creation's a theory, which is this data more consistent with? No, the data automatically gets viewed through the lens of evolution and gets incorporated into that philosophical worldview. That's how they write and that's how they think. They never consider that. It's completely ruled out. That's exactly how the penal model theologians think. They already know the law works like this. They won't even consider another option, and thus most of their conclusions are warped in a false way. And the grace conclusion is warped in a false way as well.
So what is grace? See, the focus of their grace is the definition on us. We don't deserve. The true focus of grace is on God. God is gracious, regardless of who God is dealing with. Was God less gracious to the angels in heaven? He's a less gracious God. Or was he always gracious? But the depths and manifestation of his grace wasn't fully seen until the depths of sin where that grace was manifested. But he was always just as gracious as he is now. For instance, was God less capable and less willing to heal blindness before sin existed and before there was blindness? Or is he just as capable and just as willing? But because there was no blindness, nobody could see how capable and willing he is. It was always in his heart to do. So God is always gracious. His grace doesn't change. There's another definition and aspect of grace that I understand, and that actually is God's work, God's actions, God's initiatives, God's interventions. Thus, God's grace is God acting through all time in all manner for the good of his creation, providing what is always best for them. That is the real definition of God's grace. That's what it is. So, is it true that we do receive blessings from God that we have not earned. It's not a paycheck from God. We haven't worked for it. We haven't merited it by our own actions in some way. Is it true that that's true? Yes, that's true. And because that's true, then the legal model then jumps on that element, but it denies the actual much broader and deeper beauty of what grace really is. It's not restricted to that view. And for the first time, I see the fish as grace. The fish is grace. Jonah was doing his escape plan, then he had the unselfish throw me over, and his only option there was drown. God, in his foresight, had the fish, knew that that was the intermediary that would also give him both God's presence as well as the authority that the, they would recognize. So for the first time, I see the fish as grace. Yeah, and another prophet might have just gone straight to Nineveh, but not come with such a powerful endorsement of being coughed up by a fish to the fish God-worshipping people. So, um, in the lesson, it states in the third paragraph, the only thing Saul deserved was punishment. (laughs) That's what it says in the lesson. The only thing Paul deserved was punishment. What moral level are they revealing themselves to be operating at with this statement? Two. Level one through four, somewhere. All those levels have this idea of punishment involved. Level one is reward and punishment. Level four is legal penal punishment. So this idea that, that breaking rules requires punishment is the... And this is the level that Hebrews 5 says, if you're at this, you're an infant, still on milk, not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. People who promote this are not promoting the gospel of righteousness. It's the infection that keeps the church with a form of godliness, but with no power. And just think of the power that Paul possessed by that conversion from the Saul to the Paul. Yeah. So this idea about he deserves punishment is, is that Saul's problem was Saul's bad behavior, and bad behavior is breaking rules, and rule-breaking um, you know, uh, requires the authority to inflict punishment. This is the idea. It's not really our situation, though. It misdiagnoses the problem. The true situation of all human beings since Adam and Eve, Psalms 51, we're born in sin, we're conceived in iniquity. We have a condition we didn't choose that, if without remedy, will kill us. How many of you chose to be a sinner. You were either born from a sinful mother and a sinful father, or you didn't come into this world. That's it. After Adam and Eve sinned, there was no possible way for a human being to come into the world that wasn't already a sinner. 
Born in sin, conceived in iniquity, Psalms chapter 51. Now, is it your fault? Is it my fault that we were born with the condition we have? Is it our fault? Is there guilt because we were born with this condition? No, it's not guilt. But does this condition result in fear and self-centeredness in us? And what when we act in fear to protect self, what are those acts called? Those acts are called sin. When we act against love and against trust, we act to protect self against others. That's what those acts are called. So Paul, who was born in sin, deserved from God a God of love what? Well, let me give you an analogy maybe you can handle. Imagine you have a child who's rebelled and gone off into wild living and and has been using dirty needles, uh, doing IV drugs, and has got HIV positive from the dirty needles and and had a child with another person who's also HIV positive. So your first grandchild is born HIV positive. That's your first grandchild. What did your grandchild do wrong? Would you love or hate your grandchild? If you were uh, also a doctor, perhaps, and you had a cure for HIV, what would you do with that cure? Because your grandchild is born with a condition that is terminal and is outside the laws of health, it's, it's a violation of the laws of health, would you seek to punish your grandchild for this? What would your grandchild deserve? We're talking about deserve now. What would your grandchild deserve from you if you're a being who loves? And if you are a being who loves and has a remedy, what does your child, grandchild deserve from you? Why does your grandchild deserve your love and deserve the remedy you have for them? Because of something they've done? Why do they deserve it? This is what Wendell was getting to a moment ago. Don't they deserve your love if you are a being who loves? And the remedy, if you have one, don't they deserve it because of who they are? Not because of what they've done. So the question is, who are we to God? And who is he to us? Well, for most Christians, he's the judge. He's the dictator. He's the rule giver. He's the punisher. He's the executioner. He's the one we have to be protected from. And so we create theology after theology. We have an advocate to plead our case so he won't punish us. We are covered by the robe of righteousness so he can't see us. We have blood applied to our books so it erases it so he can't see what's wrong with us. I mean, for most Christians, he's not somebody that's seeking to help us. He's somebody seeking to get us. We, we have guardian angels watching us and keeping track of all our bad deeds. Not regarding our recording angels. You know, the, the corruption that it's taught. And think of the mindset. Think of what we're putting in kids' heads. In reality, if your grandchild was in this condition and you are a person who loves and you had a remedy, what would you be doing? Justice. And what's justice? Justice is doing what's right. And what's the right thing to do for the grandchild? Offer the remedy, okay? Now, we are God's children. Because God is love and because who we are to him, we do deserve his love. Not because we've merited any more than that we've done something to earn it, but because of who we are to him. One of Satan's lies is the idea of unmerited favor, which focuses people on behaviors and blinds them to realizing who they truly are, children of God. And they don't feel that they're worthy. Worthy worms such as I. The song, you know. Yes, Wendell. We also deserve his love because that's who he is. That's right. And, and if, if truly we are to be revealed about God and who he is, that we deserve a revelation 
of who he is. So, so back to the grandchild who's HIV infected, and you have a cure, and you love your grandchild, and you're offering the child this, and the child is now an adult and is refusing your remedy. Now what? You plead with the child. You send envoys. You send advocates. You send friends. You, you, you give evidence of others who live before them with the same disease and how terrible it is for them and how they've died. You keep a record. You keep a record, a script, maybe something called a scripture of people who haven't taken the remedy and they can read the histories of those lives and how painful and corrupt they were. And you show all this to your grand, but your grandchild still will not take the remedy. What do you do? Do you force it upon them? And if they, if they don't take the remedy, what happens? Mm-hmm. There's a quote from Oswald Chambers in the notes, I won't have time to read it, that talks about the same thing. I want to close with this because I think it's an important piece. Um, Saul, on the road to Damascus, was overwhelmed with an experience, and many people think this was a violation of his free will. This was God using power to coerce or pressure Saul of Tarsus to do what he wanted. I want to say this is absolutely misreading what's happened, and I'm going to give you evidence that, that what happened there, Saul was given new data points that Saul then processed and made choices on his own. And do we have evidence that Saul was not coerced? Well, when, when Saul had the experience with Christ on the road, did God download new memories into Saul's mind? No. Did he give him um, new Bible verses that he never knew? He now had all these new Bible verses downloaded into his head. He now knows. No. Um, what he did do is he said, wait, step back, reevaluate everything you've been taught with a new perspective, a new possibility. Think it through for yourself. Come to your own conclusion, which is what he did. So here's the evidence. What about Pharaoh? Did God give Pharaoh a lot of miraculous evidence? Did, was, was Pharaoh overwhelmed to the point he could not resist it? Or did Pharaoh still resist the evidence? What about, and this is a big one, when they came to arrest Jesus, it says divinity flashed through humanity and they fell down as dead men. Peter whips out a sword and cuts off a person's ear. And then Jesus tells Peter to put the sword away and Jesus picks up the ear and he puts it back on in front of these guys. So they see the divinity flash just like Saul on Damascus Road had the divinity flash. And he gets some, they get something Saul didn't get. They get a miracle performed right in front of them. Did that convert them? Was their individuality overwhelmed such that they were not capable of resisting the light? Or did they still resist the light, arrest and crucify him anyway? What happened on the Damascus Road was not a violation of Paul's freedom. It was not coercive. It was not uh, uh, um, threatening. It was simply data points, evidences that Saul needed to allow him to step back, reflect, and come to new opinions. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are the source of all love and truth and that you are constantly reaching out through all manner of, of avenues and resources and means to reach each one of us with, with evidences and truth that are important for us to bring us to a sense of conviction and bring us to decision points in our life where we can make choices to embrace truth and grow in truth and advance in truth and be transformed by your loving presence. We ask that your spirit will come now and take what you've already achieved in, in our behalf and restore your character within us. So it's no longer I that live, but you live within us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.